0: Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: Hi folks, we're going to get you to take a seat, and I'm going to introduce the wonderful Lockie Hodgson. Most of you will know our beautiful Lockie, we call him ours, because he lives here in Birdwood, we've got mum and dad, we've got grandma and grandpa. Can we call you ours? Yeah, of course, definitely. That's all right. (laughs) Lockie has grown up here in Birdwood, um, and I will leave you to introduce yourself as to where you are at now for this year, for 2022, and what the year looks like for those who are visiting with us. But uh, let's just have a word of prayer over Lockie as he comes into our word. And uh, we'll hear God's word, I'm sure. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Lockie. We thank you for his heart, his passion to speak your word into our world. We thank you for the message that he's going to deliver to us today and the learning and the teaching that we're going to take away and bed in our week and our year and our life to come. Be with him. May peace be upon us. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 All right, I'll hand over to you. Thank you very much. Give us us just a snapshot of what's happening for 2022 for you.
0: Sure. Uh, So I'm currently working with uh, the Christian group at uni as a ministry apprentice, is our official fancy title. And that just means that we are on campus. There's a group of us, older, more mature uh, staff, I suppose, and we're on campus with the uni students. And our goal is to reach the 35,000 undergrad students on North Terrace with The Good News of Jesus. And so we yeah just spend time with, with the Christian students at uni, helping to train them up so that they can reach out to their friends and show and tell them uh, the message of the gospel, which is a really exciting place to be. Uh, and yeah, if any of you have family members or anything at uni, send them our way. We'd love to love to um, get to know them and all of that. Well, it's very exciting to be here with you all this morning. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, yeah, really excited to dig into God's Word today. So if you've got Bibles or phones or anything on you, feel free to open them up to Matthew chapter 8, uh, verses 23 to 27, and, uh, which I will read out for us right now. Then he got into the boat, that is Jesus, then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came upon the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves. And it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So, Let's get started. Uh, first of all, this morning, I'd like to ask you a question. How many of you here have been on a plane before? Maybe you've got to dig back in your memory a little bit, travelling before COVID, but yeah, that's, that's quite a few of us. right? Now, how many of you who've been on a plane have actually been sitting on the plane and thought about what's actually going on, what's actually happening, and been a little bit freaked out A bit scared, right? You're sitting there in this big metal tube with two big but pretty flimsy little thin bits of metal sticking out the side. You're thousands of metres off the ground, travelling at hundreds of kilometres per hour with your life and the lives of hundreds of other people literally in the captain's hands. And you can't even see them. Have you ever had this slight fear pop into your head of you as you think of all the things that could go wrong? All those episodes of air crash investigations suddenly recalled to memory. Think of 9-11 or MH370. And you start to worry, do these pilots know what they're doing? Are they actually sleeping or incapacitated? Is there a terrorist on board? Can these two thin bits of metal actually keep a huge, massive and heavy plane in the air? Is there a huge storm brewing? Is this the one flight in three million that ends in a fatal crash? I mean, one flight has to, right? How many of us have had that thought, even for a moment? Never flying again. (laughs) But I suppose for most of us, this is a momentary fear. It's temporary. The rational part of our brain kicks in, and we start focusing on the fact that it's so much more likely that this is one of the other 2,999,999 flights that don't end in fatal crashes. We remind ourselves that physics actually works and keeps planes in the sky... The pilots have had years of training and thousands of hours of flight time, and we relax. We focus on our faith in the safety of planes, and that drives out our fear of flying. But then for some people, maybe some of you, that fear isn't so easily driven out of your mind. No matter what you think or what you tell yourself, you just can't help but focus on the fact that something might go wrong. So either you grit your teeth and you hold on to the armrest, white-knuckled, for the duration of the flight. Maybe you don't fly at all. Sometimes we can focus so much on these fears that they overcome us and they drive out any faith we did have. This doesn't happen just with flying. It's the same with our Christian life. Either our faith in God drives out our fear or our fears drive out our faith in God. And that's what we'll see in this passage this morning. We'll see how fear drove out the faith of the disciples, and then we'll see two ways in which Jesus responded, and what we can learn from those responses. So please join me as we start as I pray, and then let's jump into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you continue to speak to us through it, through your Holy Spirit. We pray that this morning you would do that, Uh, we would be convicted, and that you would be teaching us uh, what you desire us to hear, uh, that we might know you better and love you more, and that our faith in you might grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's look at our first point. Fear drives out faith, sorry. Fear chases out faith. Let's see how fear drove out the faith of the disciples. So if you still have your Bibles open, have a look at them and read with me from verse 23. Then, actually let's just stop there for a sec. This first word is a very important one. It helps us to remember that this little story is just part of something larger. It's not just an isolated event that happened in Jesus' life. It's part of a larger whole. It can only be properly understood if we look to its context. It's place in this chapter, chapter 8 of Matthew. It's place in the whole book of Matthew. It's place in the context of the whole Bible and the story of God working throughout history. These things, this context is so important and it helps us get at the meaning of this passage and all passages. So in this part of Matthew's Gospel, he's got a huge emphasis on what faith looks like. At the start of chapter 8, We see Jesus' interaction with a centurion. And we see the faith that this Gentile had in Jesus. Then, in the next part of chapter 8, we see that there's a cost to choosing to truly follow Jesus. And this cost is no less than prioritising following him over everything else in the world, even money and family. Those who truly follow him must be aware of this price And be willing to pay it. And then we get to the rest of our passage for today. So we'll read it properly this time verses 23 to 25. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came upon the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. So we see Jesus getting into this boat right after his teaching about the cost of discipleship in the previous passage. Jesus has just finished saying that following him is hard. It requires a big sacrifice. And yet, what do these disciples do? They decide to follow him. They've understood the cost. They're willing to pay it. They've committed. It's a bit like that moment where you click the confirm order button when you're doing some online shopping. There's no coming back now. Come what may. But then straight away, the faith of these disciples gets tested. Their trust in Jesus is challenged. Are they truly willing to give up everything for him? So this furious storm comes upon the boat, so crazy and big that waves are sweeping over the boat. That would be pretty scary, right? Even for seasoned fishermen like Simon, Andrew, James and John, They know the dangers of being out in a boat in the middle of a storm. And they're freaking out. They think they're going to die. This confidence they had in Jesus, their faith, their trust in him, completely vanishes in the face of this storm. Their faith was being driven out by their fear. They were so overwhelmed by their circumstances, by their fears, that they focused solely on these things. And they lost focus on the object of their faith, on Jesus. And what was he doing this whole time? In verse 24, we see he was sleeping. And what does this show us? Maybe it's just that he was so incredibly exhausted by all his ministry, by the busyness of his life, that he just needed a nap. And we've all been there, I'm sure. People who have or have had young kids can probably relate But there's a deeper meaning here too. Jesus sleeping shows that he wasn't worried. He knew that his time hadn't come yet. If the disciples had their eyes fixed on Jesus instead of on what was going on around them, maybe they would have taken their cues from him. Maybe they would have recognised that if Jesus wasn't worried, they didn't need to be either. But this wasn't the case for them. The storm, it caused them to fear. And this fear chased out their faith. But they still knew where to run when they were afraid. And that was to Jesus. This is what they do in verse 25. Jesus, wake up, wake up. There's this crazy storm and we're going to die. Save us. So what can we learn from how the disciples act in this situation? We see that when we focus on fear, that fear grows and it drives out our faith. If you feed your fears, your faith will starve. So instead of looking to our fears, to our circumstances, we should look to Jesus. And if he isn't worried, then we probably shouldn't be either. So now we see how Jesus responds to this situation. And get to part two of our message today. And how Jesus responds, I've broken this up into two parts because I think there are two main things we can learn from how Jesus responds. The first thing is that the object of your faith is more important than the size of your faith. Let me say that again. The object of your faith is more important than the size of your faith. Secondly, that despite what I just said, Jesus does want your faith to grow. He wants it to get bigger. So look with me at verse 26. He replied, You have little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves. And it was completely calm. The disciples, freaking out, fearing they're about to die, they come to Jesus and wake him up asking him to save them. And Jesus' response seems pretty weird, right? You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Can you imagine what the disciples' reactions would have been to something like this? Why are we afraid? Really, Jesus? Can't you see this storm around us? Can't you hear the raging wind and feel the spray of the waves? Maybe if you were to stand up instead of just lying there on the floor and sleeping, you'd see what's going on. We're about to die, and you ask us why we're afraid? And even worse, you say that we have little faith? Sure, we're scared, but we came to you, didn't we? Isn't that faith? Was Jesus wrong to call them out like this? Didn't the disciples actually have faith in Jesus by coming to him and asking him to save them? Should they just not have been afraid? This is a question that I struggled quite a lot with when looking through this passage and writing this talk, and I think it would have just been easier to skip over it, but we're not going to do that. So briefly, I think it's important that we try to understand what's going on here. So as, as I was reading, preparing for this, I came across a quote which I found really helpful in understanding the main thrust of what Jesus is getting at here. So it's up on the screen, so read with me. The question, why are you so fearful? Together with the address, you you who have such little faith is a rebuke to the disciples for not trusting and not fully appreciating their master. Here's, Here's the bit. If the disciples respond to an absolute call to discipleship and hence leave all and risk their lives, they must also understand that the one who calls them will also preserve preserve them in whatever circumstances they may find themselves. The disciples, when they responded to Jesus, to his call to give up everything and follow him, they were putting themselves and their futures in Jesus' hands. They had great faith in him, saying, You are now the master. You're now in control. I am yours. But in this storm on the sea, they doubt whether that was a wise move. Is Jesus really going to look after us? Can Jesus really look after us? They went from saying, I'm yours, whatever may come, to saying, actually, I want to be in control of my own life again. Sorry. And this is exactly the opposite of what Jesus called them to. And it shows that they had lost that faith in him, that Jesus desired from his disciples. So if they really had faith in Jesus, being in control, being able to look after them, come what may, and actually they shouldn't have been so afraid. Alright, so let's move on. After criticising his disciples for their lack of faith, he gets up anyway, and he rebukes the wind and the waves, and the mighty roaring winds and the gigantic rolling waves all stop, there's dead quiet. Why? Why, after, seeing, after such a seemingly harsh rebuke of the disciples and their lack of faith, why would he then do the exact thing that they asked of him? We saw that Jesus, he wasn't worried. He was in control anyway. Things were going to be okay. But Jesus calms the storm, even though the disciples have lost their trust and confidence in him. That willingness they had to pay any price to follow him. Why would Jesus do that? Well, let me tell you about Lewis and Frank. Lewis and Frank are two mates, and they're out one day for a walk together. They live near the coast and enjoy, really enjoy walking along the tops of cliffs that rise straight up from the edge of the sea. So they're walking along these cliffs, And Lewis suddenly points out a pod of dolphins swimming in the ocean. How cool is that? And they're so close. They're doing cool stuff like riding waves and jumps and flips and all other cool dolphin moves. And of course, this looks awesome. So Frank and Lewis go closer and closer to the edge to see better. Soon they're standing right on the edge when suddenly the dirt slips out from beneath their feet and they're falling straight down towards the rocks at the bottom of the cliffs. Oh, no. But luckily for them, halfway down the cliff, there's a tree growing, right in the right in the correct right spot, and it looks like it could save them if they could grab on. So as he's falling, Lewis he sees the branch on his side of the tree. It looks small, flimsy, nowhere near big enough to hold his weight. Maybe if he'd eaten a few fewer hamburgers in his life, but no. There's no way. It's not going to hold me. He thinks I'm about to die. He has so little faith in the branch stopping him. But he reaches out anyway and grabs hold of the branch. And it holds. He's saved. Frank, on the other hand, looks down on his side of the tree and he sees a branch quite a bit thicker, quite a bit bigger and stronger than Lewis's. Now he's pretty confident this branch is going to hold its weight. He's a bit scrawnier than John, after all. And his branch is thicker. Easy. He's confident. Ha. What a story this will be to tell. Saved by a tree, hey? I'm so grateful this solid branch was here. Poor Lewis, he only has a small flimsy one, and that's bad luck. And Frank reaches out too and grabs hold of his branch and crack! It gives way. Turns out it had been eaten away by termites and the inside had all rotten out. And sadly, Frank keeps on falling. What does this story show us? Well, as Tim Keller says, strong faith in a weak branch, like Frank's, is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Let me say that again. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Does that make sense? It's the object of your faith, the strength of the branch, that is so much more important and how much faith you have in that, how confident you are that that branch will hold your weight. And this is why Jesus calmed the storm, even though the faith of the disciples was small, because it's not the size of the faith that's important. It was the fact that their faith, however small, was placed in Jesus. They weren't sure the branch was going to hold them and save them, but they did choose the right branch, the object of their faith was strong enough to save them, even if they didn't know that, even if they didn't believe that. So this leads me to ask all of you a difficult question. What branches in your lives are you trusting to save you, and are they up to the task? Maybe you're trusting your career to make you happy, to help fulfill your purpose, to support you in the long run. Maybe you're thinking a new relationship will fill that hole that you feel inside you. Maybe it's studying hard and getting good grades at uni so your parents and friends are impressed and praise you. Maybe it's more money that's the answer to all of your problems. Or all of the world's problems would be solved if only the government got their act together, if only some new technology was developed. Can I be blunt and say that these are all weak branches, they will not, they cannot hold your weight when you fall. They may look strong and foolproof, but they're not. There is only one branch that's strong enough to hold you, and that branch is Jesus. What might it look like for you to have him as the object of your faith? So now we see Part two of Jesus' response. So we've just seen that a little faith is enough to save us because it's the object of our faith, not the size, that's important. But while that is true, Jesus also wants our faith to grow. He wants us to have this faith that drives out our fears. When he says, oh, you of little faith, that's not a good thing. It's a rebuke. We need to see it like that. Jesus wants his followers to have great faith, to have great trust in him. He wants to see them grow, to see them mature, not just be content with where they currently are. How does Jesus go about helping the disciples to grow in their faith in him in this passage? Well, he calms the storm, right? This is positive reaffirmation and reinforcement of the fact that Jesus is powerful, He'll come through for you if you run to him in your fear. Surely this will help the disciples' faith to grow. And yes, that's true. But there's more. It's really easy to skip over this bit when we're reading the passage. Jesus reveals a deeper truth here. Deeper than the fact that he is powerful and has authority. And he does it in a very subtle but very amazing way. So up on the screen is Psalm 107, verses 23 to 31. Might be a little bit small, but read along with me if you can. Verse 23. Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. We also see Psalm 65, verses 5 to 8. You answer us with awesome and righteous deeds, God our Saviour, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, and the turmoil of the nations. The whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders. Where morning dawns, where evening fades, you call forth songs. joy, And finally, Psalm 89, verse 9. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you steal them. So I've got a question. Who in these passages has the power to calm storms and steal waves? It's God, right? It's God who calms storms. It's God who steals the waves. So when Jesus does something that is again and again and again, associated with God in the Old Testament, what is he claiming? He's claiming that he's God, right? When he calms this storm, Jesus not only demonstrates that he has incredible power and authority, but he actually is claiming to be God. He's starting to reveal to his disciples that he is God. And the disciples... They finally react in the right way. They don't just say, oh, hey, thanks, Jesus, for calming that storm. (laughs) thought for a minute we were goners. Now what's next? They react in the right way. And I think we would do the same thing. Imagine you got caught outside in a storm the other day with a couple of friends, and there's nowhere to shelter. The rain's coming down, the hail's getting bigger and bigger, thunder, lightning. And then one of your friends starts kind of ironically singing, rain, rain, go away, come again another day. And all of a sudden the rain stops. The hail disappears, the clouds are carried away, and the sun appears. You wouldn't just look at your friend and be like, thanks for that, mate. You'd be amazed, just like the disciples were. And you'd ask exactly the same question. Who is this guy? And that's the exact question Jesus wanted them to ask. The reason that Jesus stilled the storm is that so that they might want to know who this guy is. They might want to know him better and more fully. And that they might actually get to know him better and more fully. This is what Jesus sees as the antidote to the lack of faith. Getting to know Jesus more and more. And we see how this plays out over the rest of the lives of the disciples, right? As they grow in their knowledge of who Jesus is, they do grow in their faith and their trust in him. But it's not until he's fully revealed to them, through his death, through his resurrection, that they actually grasp who he is. And that incredible amount of faith and trust and confidence that they can have in him. After this revelation, nothing can stop them, nothing can faze them. Think of people like Stephen in Acts, who was willing to be stoned, to give up his life for Jesus, so strong was his faith. Think of the persecution and eventual execution of Paul, his willingness to face that, to face that because he knew the one in whom he had placed his trust. Think of the rest of the disciples, so frightened and easily dismayed by Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion. But when they fully understood who he is as God, all but John were executed, martyred for their faith, and John was exiled. Can you see here how Jesus is right? How better and how more fully understanding him and knowing him can and does lead to a bigger and a stronger faith. And that is the bigger and stronger faith that Jesus desires his followers to have. This faith in a crucified and resurrected Jesus, that is strong enough to drive out any fear you might have. And so finally, as we wrap up, what does this mean for us? What should we be taking away from this? Firstly, it's super important to remember that all of us, from the newest to the most mature Christian, have moments where Jesus would be well within his rights to look at us and say, Oh, you of little faith. All of us are plagued by doubts, by fears, but what matters is how we respond to them. Do we focus on these doubts and fears? Do we feed them, let them grow so large that they chase out any faith that we do have? Are there any areas in your life that you are currently letting this fear chase out your faith? Or, on the other hand, do we look to Jesus, the sure, strong branch that is able to keep us from falling, even when we only have a little bit of faith? Do we remind ourselves that the object of our faith is so much more important than the size of our faith? Do we focus on Him, on Jesus, who desires to reveal Himself to us, and by revealing Himself to us, growing our faith so that it is big enough and strong enough to drive out all of our fears? We, as Christians living in the 21st century, are so, so blessed To have this full revelation of God, this full revelation of Jesus, so easily accessible to us in our Bibles. This revelation that's contained in the Word of God changed Jesus' disciples from those of little faith to great heroes of the faith. And so I encourage you to go, meet with Jesus in the pages of Scripture, learn more and more about him in whom we have trusted, in whom we have put our faith, and allow that revelation to grow your faith too. So, let's look to Jesus, the object of our faith. Let's focus on him above all else, and let's see how our fears and our doubts run from our mighty God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us, that we might know you, that we might grow in our faith and our love for you. We pray that you would continue to grow us, continue to show us more of who you are, that we might be able to trust you, trust in your ability and you as God to overcome any fears that we might be having. And we pray that we would be reminding each other and reminding ourselves of this great truth and that you would be speaking to us and comforting us and giving us faith that does allow us to chase out these fears. In Jesus' name. Amen.